Okay, last one, folks. With bony hands, I hold my partner. On soulless feet, we cross the floor. The music stops, as if to answer. An empty knocking at the door. It seems his skin was sweet as mango when last I held him to my breast. But now, we dance this grim fandango. And will for years before we rest. To abnormal mapping i'm your host matthew marco with me is regular host jackson tyler hello and our special guest heather alexander say hello hello and this is our 25th podcast it's our silver anniversary jackson what are you getting mm-hmm. us uh well you don't know this but right behind that was inserted a massive fanfare so oh well i'm glad you're editing segment one then <laughs> no problem <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll buy you a game if you want. I don't. I don't need any. You don't more want games. any more I games. I don't want any more games. You buy, buy me a nice a book. book. Yeah, buy me a yeah. book. <laughs> buy me sure a Star thing. Trek book, Jackson. That's what I want. I know you do. And uh, you'll notice a 25th episode was not actually our episode on Final Fantasy VIII because Monster Hunter happened and ruined us all. Well, it ruined me and Destiny. I just didn't dip play it. You still can. I mean, I still can. I mean, I'm going to be playing but... that game for like two years, so you're fine. You have time. Mm-hmm. I know we've got time. But uh, the Final Fantasy VIII episode's coming, and uh, that's all I wanted to say. It's just going to take a while. Yep. Is, is that with Austin? Uh, there's two parts, because we can't play uh, all of Final Fantasy in one go. But the first the first half will be just me, Destiny, and Matt talking about the systems. But when we finish the game, then we're getting Austin on. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Yes. That's Austin Howe, for those that don't know. Go yeah. follow him. And I'm sure that me and him are going to have a fight about something. Because no. I, I disagree with him on like half the things he says. So. Oh, I thought you were pretty lined up, because you both love that game. Uh, about Final Fantasy VIII, but he's going to say something about a different game, and I'm sure I'm going to yell at him. It's okay, we're just going to talk about metal. Okay. Yeah, that'll fine. work out fine. You guys will really uh Me and Destiny really bond will go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the Blink-182 breakup. Great. <laughs> the Hot only two podcasts. people on Twitter. Look forward life to in, that. Life and yeah. times of Fred Durst. <laughs> uh, but before we get into it, we have additions to the reading list. Jackson, we d- do you want to add your addition to the reading list? Uh, we, I do. Um, first addition to the reading list is a YouTube channel called Major Third, which is this fantastic channel that is breaking down songs from specific games. They did a cool video about... Uh, Shovel Knight that broke down why the main song in one of the Shovel Knight's first levels was this really cool homage uh, but innovation in the style of NES platformer music and I just love it because I love uh, stuff that's actually engaging with video game music on terms that aren't just 
it sounds good and it has this tone like there's music theory backing it up but it isn't completely inaccessible like matt doesn't know music theory but he understood all of it it was presented really well so i'm a massive fan of this and uh my addition is justice points uh which is a video game podcast that kind of models itself after the traditional games podcast template uh but uh has hosts apple cider mage and sufi and they are they build themselves or i guess maddie myers build it as a feminism 102 podcast <laughs> basic listeners need not apply and all they often have guests talking about great stuff uh definitely listen for the amazing guests uh, both of maddie myers episodes highly recommended they get mm-hmm. incensed about the world I have a total recommendation, even though uh, I don't know if I can add things to the reading list or not. Go ahead. Feel free. Um, it's been going on for a long time now, but it's finally being updated. Um, Gold Vision is doing a pacifist playthrough of Grand Theft Auto Online. You should look that up on YouTube. It's freaking hysterical and really, really interesting <laughs> and really, really existential. And <laughs> Online he... specifically? Yes. So right now, one of the things that he is trying to do is he um, the game forces you to rob one of the store clerks as part of a uh, quest. And so he's trying to repay the store clerk by buying like enough candy bars to eat to pay back the diff- <laughs> the difference of money that he stole plus like compensatory damages. It's really amazing. Um, it's just a really fun series. It gets updated very, very slowly though. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yep, yeah, I'm a fan of that. I totally love engaging with spaces in ways that you were absolutely not <laughs> expected to at all. listeners must know a little bit about you heather would you like to introduce yourself a bit um cool yeah my name is heather alexandra i uh, i guess i'm a game critic i don't know (laughs) i don't know it feels funny to say that because i've only been writing since about um august of last year so I, i i did a piece on pt when it came out and and then i started writing from there uh I do some content creation, so right now the big thing I'm doing is um, like a nostalgia series uh, on Skies of Arcadia, which is my favorite game of all time, and if you haven't played it, you should really find a way to play it. It was for the Dreamcast, but was also released on the GameCube. Um, you, I, I mean, I suppose you guys will link, or, or there will be links to, to my blog or whatever later oh, on, sure. but I... Uh, but I am in I am in the blogosphere, and that's that's sort of what I do. In the real world, I um I work on video games as both a designer and uh, more generally in a, a, a quality assurance position. So I am QA lead on a on a project that I am currently working on. So games, games, they define my life. Well, not define that. That sounds that sounds really like. <laughs> It's just it's just that they're everywhere. Divine My Life makes it sound like that's like the only thing I do. I was going to say like I don't want to cast aspersions that sounds kind of sad given no, the way it games No, do- it does it does sound sad. Um no, find find other hobbies people. <laughs> games are weird. No, but it's it's I write about them, I, I work on them 
and uh and apparently I'm, i i i go on podcasts about them as well no it's it's fun <laughs> so your sky's nostalgia playthrough the video that you have pinned to your twitter is amazing yes um, um yeah why, why sky specifically what is it about um, skies that speaks to you why sky specifically uh oh Oh gosh, really tricky question. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ramble and uh, feel free to uh, take a little crowbar and like no, shut no, no. it this, in and like stop a, me. This is a free podcast; people can um, listen all they want. So skies skies is this game that when you look at it on paper should be very very boring, right? You play as sky pirates in the sky. The most redundant <laughs> um, statement I could make. I, I'd actually I'll just interject because I actually really like skies, but I. I bought it for GameCube when it came out and got like two hours in about six times before it actually took. And I realized that it was a good game because it does totally sell itself as the most boring thing on earth. Yeah. So it seems, it seems really formulaic. Um, so you, you're fighting an evil empire and you have to go around with your like mysterious, like white mage companion to find like six magical crystals to stop people from summoning monsters. And for the first, like, three acts of that game it plays like every potential jrpg trope really really straight and then by act four and act five it completely like just inverts them but even during the parts where they're playing everything straight they're doing it with like a really strong honesty so um often like so there so there's this notion i have vaguely in in my mind of authenticity right um not quite in the existential sense of, of of authentic action, but sort of authentic expression. And Skies is a really authentic game because there's no there's no like real pretense to it, right? So um, I use this as an example as a game that has a lot of pretense, and a game that has a lot of pretense is like Far Cry Three. Um, it pretends to do all these really important things and tries to use the game to, to make you question things. And the writer like is like, Oh, haha, I used games to make you think, but games can make you think without needing to be like needlessly deceptive or anything like that. Skies, what you have in front of you is what you get. And the fact that it is, um, so unironic and unabashed in its love of things like heroism and sort of optimism and determinism is is really refreshing, particularly at the time when the game came out, because we have to remember that game came out in, in the year 2000. I think it came out a year after the Dreamcast came out. And a lot of RPGs at the time, not to paint with too wide of a brush, were sort of trying to be a little bit more serious. And then all of a sudden this game came along with like bright colors and like normal tropes and a message where it's like if you work i don't want to say work hard because work hard is like this that has so much baggage to it but the thesis of that game is that nothing is impossible right no it's like naruto like just believe in yourself a little bit um i i mean i think it it definitely trades that kind of anime like energy and optimism tone yeah so it's this thing um I, i i wrote about it briefly but but not like not like an article um so schopenhauer has this idea of of the will like the capital w w will and it's this thing that like imposes itself on people and the way that we sort of avoid being controlled by it by like this strange large large metaphysical force is by like 
aestheticism and like this real boring stuff. Um, so, so Skies of Arcadia is this game where like everybody, not everybody, um, but a lot of people are despondent and sort of overcome by like the world that they are in and like this quote unquote will that's sort of upon them. Like it's never expressed that way. I'm, I'm applying like a philosophical lens to the, to the text. Um, and instead of rejecting that will through just like asceticism or something like that, uh, the way that we reject it in that game is through helping others, which I think is a really affirming um, thing to have in games where it's a game where you enter a space and you help people and it fundamentally changes their outlook in some way. And as you go about that game world, um, facing more and more challenges and more and more things that people say are impossible, you continually prove them wrong and you sort of shift their view of like you stop people from being oppressed by like this metaphysical like depression that's built down upon them after years of years of implicit history and it becomes like this really optimistic really wonderful thing and um i think the thing i said in the video uh was um the reason i love that game so much is that it makes me believe in heroes it makes me believe that people can be good um because i don't know if in real life people can be good or if heroes exist in real life, or at least in the sense that I'm talking about, right? Of course, there are heroic people, but um, Skies of Arcadia, definitely, that game makes me... Like, that's that's why I think it's important. I think I think it's important as an, an emotive experience. Often with critical work, we talk about, like, how critically dense is this? Like, how many different reads can I do this? Like, what what is this saying? Like, like I did shadow of the colossus and that was like so much more about like semiotics and how like images were expressed and icons and etymology and all these things but sometimes a, an, an important text doesn't have to be one that's critically dense or necessarily one that's been given the like stamp of importance by posterity um games are important because they can make us feel right and so um, Skies of Arcadia is an important game to me because it makes me feel the same way that I don't know. Um, I'm sure somebody plays, I don't know, Beyond Two Souls, like a really banal game that hey, I don't like. Hey, 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 hey. whoa, whoa. <laughs> You were talking to like, hey. especially me, like one of the biggest Beyond Two Souls Listen, fans. listen, I love <laughs> Heavy, I love Heavy Rain. No, I think Heavy Rain's garbage. <laughs> Oh, oh no! Hold up a sec. We went backwards. <laughs> we went backwards. This is bullcrap. But anyway, the point. All I'm trying to say is that like, <laughs> games are games are totally important to us because they can make us feel things too. And sometimes I think, at least critically, we want to sit back and like think of like games as like this intellectual enterprise. But really, what games are are emotion. Games are feelings. They're experiences. Well, I I think in general it's when. Like it's possible to be critical in an empathetic way. You shouldn't intellectualize your feelings. I don't. When anyone's like giving a read of a work, I don't want them to remove themselves from it and break it down in this intellectual way that ignores these reactions that only they can have because of who they are. I think that's dishonest. I, I want to work against that in general. Well, I think I think too we we run into issues sometimes, and maybe this is me projecting. Uh, and cre and stating that there's an issue that exists that doesn't. But I think at times we look at certain titles as being quote-unquote less than other titles just because they don't have as much to unpack. So, you know, let me try and think of an example of a game that's fairly banal that I think we might all agree on. Um, Dead Island. 
Dead Island is this crazy, like, it's not particularly edifying. Um, it, it plays very strangely, but, but still there's value to looking at it as an experience, even if the conclusion you make is like, oh, this isn't really that good of an experience. Um, like, I think there's still value, like, one of the, one of the pitfalls of crit- of criticism is to elevate certain qualities above other things, and it's it, and that's very hard because um, critique relies on subjectivity, um, and to say like you know this game did this better than another like that's like it's so hard it's so hard to talk about these sorts of things because they rely so much on on the observer as opposed to just the text itself. Like, the text, like... And we can talk about this if you want. Um, a text, like a book or a movie or a game, they're dead. Like, there's nothing there. There's nothing hidden deep underneath it that you, that you like, dig underneath, like, a paleontologist and find. Um, value is not something that is found. Value is something that is created. Well, it's, yeah, I think on some level, you put out... You get out what you put in when you come to a thing. A little you bit. have to be open to it for it to be open to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there is a difference in how I would approach, like you mentioned Dead Island and Far Cry 3, and both those games are games I would never even think to buy or play <laughs> because they're like AAA style games of like a certain mode and like the time investment and the content and the cost all, like I'll read, if someone's like, here, this is a really great book. I'll believe them and read it even if I think the blurb is bad. Like, because a book costs me $8 in, like, six hours of my time. Right, right. And I, I'll, do, I'll do that with all games. Like, I'm like, this doesn't sound interesting, but Jackson recommended it. I'll play it. But, like, a game like that, like, my approach... I think it's hard to approach a game that is going to cost you 30 hours of your life and $60 of your money and say, I might not like this, but I'm going to approach it openly. At least for me. Like, it's a thing I find myself shying increasingly away from. Sure, but that's not... You're not writing about it from that perspective. You're just ignoring it. You're saying, that's not for me. No, absolutely not. But I think a lot of I think a lot of people do write from that perspective. And even if, even if they're not explicitly doing it, I think it informs a lot of discourse, especially on big games. Mm-hmm. Because a game has to be, quote-unquote, good or it is not valuable. And I think, I think the consumer and like time investment trappings of games actually hold them back from being maybe flawed, interesting things. Well, we had that, we we had the whole time investment issue come up in a very perfunctory way when, when the order came out, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody was like, oh, that's too short uh, for the price tag. And I haven't played the order. I don't know anything about it, but I'm sure like it has moments, right? So our, our metric for, for, for like quality, particularly when it comes to length or something like that, it, it it shifts around so much. Like, well, that, um, that, that you know? order thing was like, we've had this discussion. This is exactly the same thing that was being discussed in 2000. Like, when you re- you just realize that wider games culture uh, doesn't... Ha- like, these arguments are still going on and will go on in perpetuity forever until that area of games collapses in on itself. But also, as much as I like big, stupid, long RPGs, I... The, the minute you tell me a game is like a thing I can complete in a day, I am very excited and interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Because, I mean, I think it's I, it, who you are in your life situation, but I don't, I never want to spend 30 hours on a game. Oh, God, no. That's like a burden to me. Like, I'll accept it every once in a while. And, like, the games I get really invested in often are really long. But for the most part, that's not a selling point. Tell me a game is five hours long and I'm there. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, like, the the 
order specifically, like I don't, I don't care about that game because of a bunch of reasons. Like you said, like it deals in all these tropes that, and it is marketing itself as this AA thing that could not be more banal to me if it tried. But that, like, if you're gonna actually approach that. my response is to ignore it completely. If you then go into writing about that in order to dismiss it, that's that's just as worthless. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to sort of, at least definitely to mainstream game journalism, that the two things I know about The Order, certainly, um, or at least I trust certainly, uh, based upon my uh, trust of the people who have told me these things, is that A, it looks really pretty, and then B, that it is really short. It's... it. It's really telling that those are the two things I know as opposed to I couldn't like I've read reviews about this game. I couldn't tell you a name of a character. I couldn't tell you much about the content of it at all. All I know is that it looks good and that it's short. And that's sort of like a microcosm or like some sort of weird uh, case study in how at least modern games journalism approaches games, right? They're like it's that whole thing where it's like gameplay eight out of blah uh sound blah da dee all of that stuff um mm. and and we still haven't broken free from that entirely yet and and i think the order uh really showed that off in 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 how we handle our reviews whereas like i would love to just have like and it would never happen i would love to have somebody just write a, a review that was like completely experiential and not trying to be this sort of a I don't want to say objective because I don't think I don't think writers trick themselves into into saying that their reviews are objective. But I think there's still this notion of being beholden to their reader base or beholden to consumers in some way that's very sort of gross and uh, self-effacing. I I don't think that like I I don't think you can do that in reviews. I think reviews is a concept. I think though. I actually can. Like I don't see I mean, it in video can. games. But when when I think of like a a reviewer that I like who does this and makes it approachable, like Ebert's the first one that comes to mind. I mean, like, sure, yeah. He wrote f- like 500 word things about his experience and his emotions with thematic contents of movies and then just slapped a score on for the people who needed to know what to see on any given day. Sure, you're right, but when I'm thinking about a deep experiential read of a thing, I don't think it's worth doing that in a context that's uh, framing it as should you or should you not. Well, the problem I- is treating a review as should you or should you not is maybe the problem like the idea that reviews equals consumer buying advice is maybe a flaw in how we view reviews as like an actual concept have you have either of you ever read kieran gillen's review of deus ex that was in pc gamer back in the day no but i've heard about it yeah so um if you ever want uh, an an example of a review that not only like helps you understand exactly what the game is about, but also is like this really great piece of experiential and almost um, like not even like review. It, it's it's very pro prosaic. Like it's a very pros prosaic. I'm not using that word correctly. Whatever. It's really freaking good. And if you ever want an example of sort of how a review can really. Uh, get to the heart of a work without needing to be like the graphics are really good like that's it like it's it's totally perfect i think i think um, it uh so their good best their best times the what i think on rock paper shotgun about games that is kind of their review format is a lot like that like they try sure. to do they try to capture that a lot and that's i mean not surprising given the history of that site yeah i mean I say all this, I say all this and then I have to backpedal a bit because it's like I don't read as much as I probably should. 
Yeah, me either. But, you know, but 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 I think there's room for. I mean, it to tie it all back to even to what I was talking about. If Skies of Arcadia is important to me as like an emotive experience, I'm sure somebody can write about that in a review that explains like, okay, like so. Here's another one that I always go that I always go back to as well, and this one had had stupid scores that were all over the all over the place, and I, this even came up in my video. But it's Deadly Premonition. Mm-hmm. Um, if you ever want proof that games are this emotive thing instead of just the sum of all of their working parts, necessarily Deadly Premonition Premonition is it? Excuse me, um, because it it plays terribly, um, and yet some people were compelled to give it a ten out of ten for whatever the hell a 10 out of a 10 means, right? Yeah. And yet some other people were like, no, it's a zero. So there's obviously some quality to games that goes beyond just, say, the modes of interaction or, uh, you know, the kinesthetics of the control or whatever. There's something deep underneath a game um, that's perhaps not even quantifiable in a traditional sense that... Uh, imbues a game with a certain amount of meaning and I, and I, and I don't know if that's something that's that uh it's it's probably something that the that the reader brings to the text right but it's yeah. still it's still like somehow something just clicks mm-hmm. um and and I wish we had I wish we had language for discussing that sort of stuff a little bit more I I think we do I think that's possible to discuss I just think people don't do it that often I what am I I wrote something last year about Burnout Paradise or the whole Burnout series which easily I could have transformed that into a review if I wanted to like, sure. there's a way to re- review Burnout Paradise in a way that talks about what that game's about to me even if uh, if you look at that on a service level it's just a car game that drive good yes <laughs> and, and I, like I, I want I, ha- I had a discussion with Matt off uh, off mic that was um we didn't really get into it that deeply, but it was about the idea of what, how you should present games on their themes. Like, should you say this is a game with these themes, or should you say this is a platformer? Hmm. I, I, you're being very reductive to the argument that I was making that it, we were making. Like, that, that was my that was my point. Like, I, I, like, I, it was a big long conversation, but that I don't know. I mean, I think that there are people writing these experiential pieces about games. They just refuse to classify them as a review because the people with the tendency to write these things reject the kind of consumerist mindset that makes up mainstream game culture. Yeah, like, if I'm writing experiential game pieces, that's what I do or want to do, at least. I'm never going to write a review again in my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, you review films. I was going to say, you say that now, but but then when your wallet needs the money... (laughs) Okay, someone wants to pay me to review a video game. I'll happily review a video game. You'll, you'll play you. the you'll play the shit out of Blood, Bloodborne. I won't because I have a review. <laughs> for, a, me writing a review of Bloodborne would be the least helpful thing of all time. I have never played a Souls game. Oh, I'm so excited! End of the month's gonna be good. I had the chance to play it the other day at Rezd, and I walked straight past it. Oh no! You went no. and played games that matter instead, though. So. I went and played Cave Cave Deus Day. Yeah. Oh, that's cool and yelled in the middle of a crowded room when it did a jump scare <laughs> um but uh i don't know like part of this is also like me and jackson you're a little different maybe now that you have a patreon like i don't i don't think about games in a mode of like commerce because to me this is just a hobbyist thing that i do mm-hmm. 
I I don't think of it in a commerce mode, at least. I do the Patreon thing, but I try to... I don't know. I'd sw- like, I get paid... I technically get more money for this than the thing that I do on the side. Mm-hmm. But I think of that in a more, I have to do this for my job. even Which is weird. I, I, I work... Uh, I don't get paid, because uh, they don't pay us. But I posts and reviews for this movie website at the moment i think of that in that context if i have to adopt this style i have to review them in this way and i'm doing that for someone else whereas when i write stuff about games i'm doing that for myself and hopefully people are enjoying them yeah and for sure right but i'm I'm not thinking about it in a i have to do this because this is what is required but we are not in the games writing industry so no maybe i will one day maybe that's there's no other jobs for me (laughs) <laughs> you could you could make baskets and on the side of the road and it would pay better and be more fun. Yes. <laughs> it's true. It's 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 not untrue. But <laughs> wouldn't you like to read my review of Mortal Kombat X, Matt? I'll I'll buy a wicker basket from you. <laughs> I'll put video games in it and think of you. <laughs> Please buy my wicker basket, Matt. Hey everyone, Matthew here. I just wanted to check in really fast. We had a bonus segment recorded in between recordings, uh, because we ended up talking for about half an hour about games while the mics were off, but unfortunately the Skype recording got, uh, mangled beyond the point of listenability, i.e. there are voices missing from it, but... Uh, I just wanted to point out that as we go into the next segment, we do call back to it a couple times. I don't think we talked about anything incredibly important. Uh, we just talked about games more generally. But uh, sorry once again this happened. Hope you enjoy the show. As always, leave likes. Uh, at... Sorry, it's not YouTube. Rate and review us on iTunes, please. And if you're listening, uh, give us some feedback. You can reply to the blog post on the website of normalmapping.com, or you could uh, hit us up on Twitter. Um, all that's appreciated. Uh, lately, I've been really down on the podcast because I feel like we don't really have much in the way of listeners. I know there's those diehard ones of you. I know who you are. But if you're listening and you haven't spoken up, let me know who you are. Uh, we need to know because sometimes podcasting is disheartening. Alright, otherwise you know all the links. Uh, enjoy the rest of the show as we get into Grim Fandango. After that protracted break where we talked about video games instead of taking a break, um, we're here to talk about our Game Club game this month, which is Grim Fandango. Heather, you picked this game. Why did you pick Grim Fandango? Why did I pick Grim Fandango? Um, Grim Fandango is simultaneously uh, the best adventure game ever made with also some of the most frustrating adventure game puzzles ever made. Um, 
Grim Fandango is 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 a game that probably exemplifies the strengths of Tim Schafer as a writer the best. Um, and this this is coming from somebody who grew up playing you know Monkey Island and Monkey Island Two. Um, Grim Fandango is able to also take like a ton of different things like it's this whole pastiche of like mexican culture and noir and all these other things and it makes it work like the the concept it's another thing where if you look at the concept on paper it's like the most confusing convoluted thing ever but once you start playing it it makes absolute sense it's like i'm a travel agent for the dead and what's going on and then you start playing and it absolutely works um i think it's a good transition puzzle uh game puzzle game well adventure game to um to sort of a 3d engine too uh that and some people will disagree with me on this but i actually think escape from monkey island which uses the same engine also works fairly well but it's also a game that's interesting to examine because it shows off both really good design and really bad design at the same time which is funny to say because Grim Fandango is also like one of my favorite games ever. How, what did you guys think of it? Okay, so I got into – I grew up exclusively on consoles. So I got into adventure yeah. games maybe about five, six years ago around the time the Shiva came out and got really into Dave Gilbert's adventure games and kind of have branched out through Telltale and some older stuff. Um, yeah, okay. But mostly it's like modern – throwback adventure games and kind of modern attempts to rejuvenate the genre, even though that's not necessary at this point, I feel like. Um, so I, well, I'd always heard of Grim Fandango cause it's spoken of in hushed tones. Like it's a sacred text for adventure <laughs> game people. I, I, it was only when they announced the re-release that I was like, okay, finally I'll, I'll play this game. I'm very excited about that. Um, and I like, I, in another life, when I was actually a film critic, film noir was like a thing that I was very much into. So this is already a thing that I was, knew I was going to be excited for. I like Tim Schafer's games that I've played. Um, and I, so there's things about Grim Fandango that are totally the bad parts of adventure games. Like some of the puzzles are really obtuse. Yes, let's talk about it. Let's do it. We'll get into it. But, um, (laughs) there's also things that I think are really interesting. I love, games with pre-rendered backgrounds. I think it's like one of the, one of the most interesting forms of expression games took in a very like thin period. Um, yes. I love moving through the world. I, I played the game with 10 controls and I don't know why anyone wouldn't. Um, and, uh, that was great. I, I just, I think that this game is amazing on so many levels, except for the part where I don't care about playing it. <laughs> But I, that's kind of how I feel about a lot of like these era adventure games where they get kind of obtuse with their uh, mechanics. But I don't know, Jackson, you are the baby adventure gamer here. Mm-hmm. I I love Grim Fandango in the same way, but I don't really care about playing it or caring about the puzzles. I used to walk through liberally, but I will say that <laughs> despite the fact that it is incredibly obtuse with certain um, elements of the puzzles and a lot of it is badly quote unquote bad design. Uh, as you will, those are also some of the most affecting moments of the game. So, um, not to get super into it off the bat, but um, the second well, the second year, the best oh, year of the game, the, exactly, um, is this area that is way too big to 
possibly approach on any kind of actual level in terms of how you're designing the puzzles. Every single puzzle is open at once. Every single area interacts with every single other area and there are the way you're meant to play adventure games is you interact with all the things and then try to make everything work until it works and there's too many variables for you to do that in a logical way in this area. Uh, and it, it all falls apart in that sense but because it's this massive area that you walk through so many times you by the time you leave that place you understand it you know which way to turn to get to which place you know the streets you know the layouts you know the camera angles and the sense of familiarity that it builds with its spaces is one of its strongest elements and I think that the pre-rendered backgrounds help with that the tank controls help with that and even the obtuse puzzle designs help with that so long as you're able to look them up if you want to sure one of the one of the craziest things about uh in terms of you're talking about the large spaces and the things that you can do in it is that um grim very often allows you to get the solutions to puzzles before you actually encounter the puzzles themselves or you can actually solve the puzzle without knowing it what it is a puzzle um so i'll use an act one example even though um i hope this will express what i mean but there's that moment where you need to sneak into Don's office to change his automatic reply message so that Ava will sign the order form so that Gladys can be your driver. Mm-hmm. You can climb, like, it's like you can go outside, explore that space, climb the tie ladder up into the office, change the automated message without, without having, I, I think you can do it without even having to have met Gladys yet. Um, so Grimm does this strange thing where it, 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 it makes the, puzzles sort of tricky because it, you have to sort of keep track of everything that's sort of going on at once but also it makes the world seem a little bit more extant because you can interact with things before like I, I think there's only one example in, in the game that I can think of where if you try and do a puzzle before you have the information for it it just won't let you do it otherwise if you like like I can in act 2 I can get the metal detector from Carla without even really knowing why I need a metal detector yet. Like, I can just get items. Like, And usually you think of puzzle games and you think of like, oh, I'm walking down this path and I see this gorge. Okay, now I need to go find something to help me find this gorge, uh, past this gorge. Or maybe you're in a space and you find like, oh, I found a rope. Maybe I'll have to use this rope later on to traverse a gorge. Um, but Grim Fandango, it both lets you find the object without you knowing like with any context what that object might be used for or it lets you encounter the scenario and even though it does a lot of it it does do a lot of good things uh about informing the player of like sort of what they need to do it doesn't quite um give everything away right away it's like so the world just sort of exists and you can just sort of go about it and and just sort of I guess fuck about with it. I, I think this is a there's this sort of informalism to specifically Tim Schafer's puzzle design because this exact thing is all over Broken Age Act One, where he, he like the puzzles are there and you like they're signposted well, but in reality it's just this shaggy dog story of you picking up whatever you need to because you know that this is an adventure game and that's what you do, and then yeah. once you get to the thing that's like oh this is impassable, what do I have that fits with this because I already went and grabbed everything. And, like, to me, that's in all of his games, uh, specifically, like, even more than, like, something like a Sierra game or whatever. Like, this is a game about picking up all the things and just kind of having them on hand for when you're ready for it. Sure. I, know, I had a, that Robert Frost balloon long before I needed a Robert Frost balloon. Yes, run, you pigeons. It's Robert Frost. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, and 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 the crazy and the thing about that puzzle too is that you can do it out of order. Um, and by which I mean you can accidentally put the bread down before you put down the the balloon, and then you screwed yourself over. You need to go down and get more bread. That, it's that's like, actually what happened to me. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep, God, I did that as well. I go get bread. I did that as well. <laughs> and then and it's also like. For the, like, this is all act one stuff, but it's like you need to, you need to clog up the mail service too. Uh, but the first time you're doing all that stuff with the, uh, with the clown who's, who's making all the balloons, you think like, oh, okay, the dead worm, oh, I get it, it's a joke. Um, but it turns out you need like two of them. Yeah, uh, I got, right? I got one of everything, cause I was like, I need one of everything, and then it was like, oh, you need two. And it's like, no, oh, you need, well, it's great. like, no, you need two. It, it totally messes with you. And then the game, the game will also do this crazy thing too, where it will give you information where that, where like, you need to remember it way later on. So um, the mail service thing gets clogged up. The guy goes in there to service it. He gets lit on fire. You automatically grab the extinguisher off the wall, which is to make sure that you have the extinguisher later on for the beavers. Like the game's just giving you the extinguisher automatically so that you don't have an item. Uh, like mm-hmm. you, like you, you don't miss an item. Yeah. And then he he runs in and he's like, "Oh, you can't use that. Uh, that thing has magnesium. It'll blow us up." But then later on in act, in Act Four, you actually need to remember that the <laughs> uh fire extinguisher has magnesium in it because that's how you revive Glottis by making them use the fire extinguisher on the fact on the packing foam when you put it into um when you put the cup on the rack next to the toaster. And you put the oily rag in. Um, so it gives, like, sometimes it'll give you information, like, way, way hours beforehand, and then it expects you to act on it, which is really insane. I can't think of many games that really do that. Yep. And I, I think those, like, those puzzles are kind of the weakest part of that game to me. Yeah. Oh, well, that, think, that and the think... timing, there's a ton of timing puzzles the, in the, yeah, in the game well, that don't work. Specifically, the beaver thing is the most infuriating like section of this game was not oh, meant God. to do this ever and that it's it, in the in the tree farm too with the uh with the tree that you need to yep. make vibrate so that glottis will go on you, and, like unless you realize that you can like put pressure down on those hoses and then come off you you think like maybe it's like i have to go over them in a certain order but no it's like it's all timing based a couple a couple months ago we talked about final fantasy 7 and that's a game that's full of these weird one-off sequences where you have this interaction that never replicates itself in the world and i feel like it's just an endemic thing of early 3d games where you're like well we have these characters we can kind of do whatever we want with them and so they add in these like interactions that you'd never do in a game that you had to animate all the like you had to make sprites for where it's like, sure. oh, you have this timing-based thing, but the framework of the game is not sufficient enough to do it. And, I mean, this extends all the way to Walking Dead Season 1, where you have to shoot zombies and it's the worst thing in the world. Where <laughs> it's like, we have this engine, we could do this thing that like would be... It's thematically appropriate for the characters to do, maybe, but it's not interesting to do in the framework of the game and is actually like hard and bad. All right, so I we I feel like I what, like I'm ragging on Grim Fandango, but I like to point out the flaws because it points out all the other things that are good. Okay, well, that's, so that's so we, because we're talking about it as this thing that you play and it's wrapped within. It comes at the end of this adventure game cycle where. I feel like this shows how disinterested uh, Tim, Tim Schafer is in making adventure games, but how thoroughly interested Tim Schafer is in writing cool places. Yeah, a little bit. allowing you to be in this space. And and like, part of that's re- reflected by the fact that almost everything in that game is diegetic. So, yeah. like, you don't have verbs on screen, and you also... um. 
I don't know if you can do... Can you do a cursor mode on PC or anything anymore? They added it in... It was like a fan mod. Yeah, Yeah. so like... Because otherwise, the only thing that you're left to do in order to to know what you can and can't interact with in the space is the head tracking from Manny. Mm-hmm. Um, and your your entire inventory is diegetic. It's like he reaches into his pocket and grabs it. Like, So if you're talking about this idea of Tim Schafer really obsessing over spaces, first off, he makes them really big. So you have to go around them and really get used to them. And you have to go from point like person to person to person to person. Um, but then also he does as much as he can, as, as he can afford to, at least to have as little abstraction in this game as possible. Yeah. Um, which sort of draws you into the world a little bit more. Oh, for sure. Like the world is this game. I love the story. I think the story is great, but what it really is, is it's places to be in. It's a cool place that he's made. Even the title is. Um, something, it's the perfect title because it's this completely, perfectly evocative thing about what the game is, but it is com- thoroughly meaningless. Uh, well, like, you hear Grim Fandango and the, uh, Mexican noir idea immediately is, uh, pulled on into your brain, but there's no Fandango in the game, there's no, this game doesn't have any dancing! Yeah, I was gonna say there's no dancing. There's, there's no, there's there's no a dancing. poem. There's a poem. There's a poem. Which There's is definitely a maybe poem. like one of my favorite sections in the game of just in the in the blue the blue casket yeah. with Olivia. Uh, did you um did you say your own poem first? Uh, no, I did all of hers and then I did it like as I was leaving. Because you can because if you say your own poem and then you ask her to do a poem, she just repeats your poem. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Um, here, oh, let's talk about. I want to do this one because I want to talk about uh this puzzle for a minute okay so petrified forest um uh street sign or whatever um did you guys look up a guide for that absolutely 100 percent. yes okay yeah 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 yeah. so the problem like uh, i i feel like i keep on saying there are problems but oh man I, I i adore this game so you have one screen where you put down the sign and it points to where you need to go to leave so you so it's like okay i go like to the up left part of the screen and that'll take me to where I need to go. Then you go to that place where there are all of these like hollows in the trees mm-hmm. and you put down the sign again and you think that it's going to point you towards like whatever tree you need yeah. to do. No, that's what it did but to the, me. And yeah. But, but the, but the item actually is now doing something completely different. It's pointing to the place in the ground where you need to place it because then it points downwards and shows like a fucking hidden door yeah i mean like that like that's that's insane puzzle design it's actually doing doing the right thing it's pointing you where you need to go it's just you don't understand that the context is different yeah but 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 it's so strange too because the context just like a street a screen earlier like you get it like you you understand it and then you just move to the next screen and you're like oh i guess it will be the same and it turns out it's like not at all and for the life of me i can't figure out what the impetus behind that 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 one was because later on um i think act three and act four are actually fairly easy to understand puzzle wise i I agree Um, with that but i think act one particularly the petrified forest is just like absolutely bonkers um I think one of the the reason that like a lot of these puzzles are like looking back obtuse is my framework for an adventure game today, like something like Grim Fandango's, I'm like, oh, it's four years, I'm going to play a year a night. 
like just like I'd play like if I played Walking Dead, I'd probably play an episode. Yeah, you play an epi- episode or something. But it's it's actually not that game. It's like Mist, where you're gonna sit down over the course of like two months with a notebook and yep. kind of jot things down. And games like that don't really exist in a modern framework. No, that's a five hour game. To yeah, me. it's not a three week epic of oh, and then I'll push at it, and then oh, I'll click this thing, and that's my progress for the night. <laughs> But it's clear that it's designed that way, especially in the first two worlds. I feel like in the uh, back half of the game, they just go full on with the narrative propulsion that they're having, and every puzzle's a little bit more limited because they've got to get through a lot of stuff. Yes, there there is a lot of cool stuff, and and I do like. I will say this: um, almost almost every event that does happen in the game is foreshadowed to some point or another, which is really really great. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why, like, to me, year four is actually maybe my favorite year because of your rocketing backward through the spaces you've been in, but in uh, the context that, like, reestablishes things, but also feels narratively fulfilling. Like, you go back to uh, Rubicavra and suddenly it's been taken over by the mob that, like, people were, like, talking about and hinting at in year two. Or you go back to your office and you're basically escorted back to your old job. Yep, and they give you all office. your old stuff. Yep. That was I, one of my favorite scenes in the game. Is like, of course, of course, the reward for Manny is he gets his old job back, and then yes, well and then you actually get the moment of Manny just being a salesman, where he's talking mm-hmm. to that yep. couple and sells them on and his vacation and, and, it, and it's and it's and it's Celso from earlier. It's it's his first client yep. from earlier, which is really great. It does a lot of full circle stuff. And then the one that I didn't catch on for a while until I played the game again is actually the guy at the slot machine that you have to toss the sheet over. It's it's Chowchilla Charlie. Yeah. Um, which I didn't, I, I was like, oh, it's just some guy. And then I was like, oh shit, it's, it's Chowchilla Charlie. Cause he talks about earlier on in the game, he's like, I have a system. Like he has that weird Peter Laurie type voice. Yep. He's like, no, I got a system for beating the, uh, the slot machines. And you're like, oh, I guess, uh, that's cool, whatever. And then you see him again. The next time you see him, he's trying to beat slot machines. Like it, it, it always comes back. It's always really great. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So much of that is like it's noir trappings where they have all these really defined characters and they just like almost like a studio system where it remixes them in a new adventure each time you skip forward a year. Yes. Well, and and the crazy thing, I like the the time skips in the game are freaking hysterical too because like year one you end up like – most of them end up with a you start with a mop and then you all of a sudden are yeah. like super awesome. So it's like you start with a mop and then you're you have your own casino. You start with a mop on the ship, then you're captain of the goddamn ship. The only one that is doesn't have that is um is the transition from year three to four because year three to four is like well, going on that big journey to, me, to get to, me, to like, the end. Like thematically, like Manny starts out as like this like hustler where he's just trying to get his good commissions and figure out the job. And then like he's he's like low tier salesman and he's like, No, I can do this, I can be a self made man. He goes and tries to do a thing and it's disastrous. But then when he goes off on his own, like he realizes over the course of two years, like he can go from nothing to everything over and over again. Like he's a person well, uh, who can self he can re self invent, but actually that's not the thing that is going to achieve his goals. It's like the year three to four uh, transition is like one of like penance almost where they have to do this long, like almost purification march through the desert to get to their goal. And right, it's right, only right. when he does that with Mei Chain and his friends and realizes like the things that actually matter 
to him that he be he becomes he comes to the position where he can achieve what he wants to achieve, which is actually way back where he started. Like the goals, everything he needed to do, he could have done there. He just didn't. He wasn't in a place to realize it. It's a di- it's a dialogue thing too. So like this seems like a really like quick way to be like here's how Manny changed but at the beginning when he first finds Meche she's like um are you here to save me and he goes no but maybe you can save me and then at the end of the game um when it's time for everybody to get on the number nine and he wants Gladys to come with him he says uh what does he say he says um he says something like I guess I got caught up so much saving everyone else I thought I could save you too so at the beginning of the game he wants somebody else to save him and then at the end of the game he, he his mind is all about saving other people, which is really, which is really nice because the game, we have to remember too that it's supposed to be, you know, the four year journey of the soul is what it's marketed as when they, when they're trying to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for, for many, it really is, um, it really is that four year journey of the soul a little bit. And I will say, I do like that at the beginning, all of the packages that he tries to give to, um, to Celso are all the different things that he goes on. So he says, like, maybe you should take a, a sports car, which he does in Act 1. Uh, maybe you should take a luxury cruise, which he does at the end of Act 2. And then he says, maybe you should get a ticket on the number 9. And then at the end of the game, he gets on the number on the uh, the number 9. Um, so it's like this whole notion of the four-year journey of the soul, it changes from... Ava says to him in the first act, she says, uh, you're a trapped soul and you don't know it. Um, and by the end of it, like... He's he's totally moved past like all of that weird, crappy commercial crap that was in El Maro, and you know he he's brought everybody to uh to the train so that they can move on to whatever's next. It's really really nice. Uh, the the thing we spoke of that scene of him saying I want to save everybody, and I realized I couldn't. The thing I actually like is that Gladys chides him for even like thinking that he's like, no, you don't understand, man. No, I never I'm needed fine. saving. And yeah, yeah. Because in actuality, like Manny's quest isn't one of saving the day necessarily. It's undoing his own, like the the things he did through his own sense of rightness caused all of these problems for people, and he's he can undo them, but only with the help of the people who choose to come with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he he doesn't find his old ticket and realize that it was stolen from him. He only like gets a ticket into on the number nine. Uh, because he does all this stuff, and I don't think he ever learns what he did wrong in his life. No, and we we don't really know that. Um, n- not many people talk about it. Like you can ask Ava about it, and she's just like nobody talks about it. Manny never mm-hmm. knows. Yeah, he's just like I guess I'm just not good enough, and then through this adventure becomes good enough and rides off with Meche in that. Oh, the ending's so good. Yeah, I love it. I love it uh, so much. If there's one thing I've learned is that nobody knows what's at the end of the line, so you have to enjoy the ride. Or whatever. I'm butchering the quote, but you know, mm-hmm. it's a simple moral at the end of the day, but it's it's a, it's fantastic. And- it's so weird, uh, because it, it's I think this uh is a far more cohesive narrative than some of the other uh Schaefer games. Yeah, and part of that I think is its trappings. Like it literally ends with the two heroes kissing on a train. It might as well be like a nineteen forties movie. Yeah, it really has a lot of Raymond Chandler in it. Mm-hmm. All the way through to, like, one of my other favorite sequences is the Field of Flowers at the very end. And oh, yeah. my One of the best visual elements in a game that's full of visual elements is this metaphor of even though you're a bunch of skeletons in the land of the dead, you can still be killed 
by like being converted into flowers and like this sense of like nature reclaiming like the sense of like the self in like a way that the city is clearly meant to be in opposition to this idea of like when you're dead you go back to the earth and instead this uh these people choose not to do that and just choose to live their lives of like sure. ego and then you go to this field and because of the contextualization of flowers are a symbol of death you just get this like it it's just the killing fields like just a, a whole thing full of flowers and it's you and your grim reaper gear in like this last moment where you literally do like a the la- most heroic shot of manny is him literally reaping flowers with this scythe and i think it's amazing. yeah to um to find uh salvador's uh corpse mm-hmm. it's strange too the way that they use flowers in the games a little bit um not not too much not enough that i have like a big thesis to talk about but it's like when um when hector lamans uh shoots uh Dawn at the end of Act One, he pushes up marigolds, right? And they, he's like, marigolds. Um, but marigolds are actually the flower, um, that are traditionally used to honor the dead during the day of the dead. Or, or at least to my understanding, um, marigolds are fairly important Mm -hmm. along with, uh, a couple other flowers that I don't know, but also, um, Don, like it's, it's all within there within the names too. So like Don's last name is Copal and, um, Copal is an, is a type of incense. Um, Calavera means skull. Like, like some of it's really reductive and really simple, but it's like it's all sort of woven in there. It's really nice. Yeah, <laughs> Jackson, you've been very <laughs> quiet. Yes, do you guys are covering it? You guys are no. pretty much covering it. One well, point. Well, tell us, tell us your favorite things. Tell us your least favorite things. Tell us all of it. Was there uh, was there anything that confused you besides just a puzzle? Besides, well, the pu- no, because the game's really self evident in terms of the uh, story that it's presenting. To yeah, because it's just uh, the most honest. Like earlier, you called it a pastiche, and I don't think that's fair. I think it just takes these tropes and takes these genres and puts them together in this incredibly earnest way. Sure, is fully committed to being everything that it is. It, at no point is taking the mick or taking the piss out of. It's not a send up of noir tropes. It's not a send-up of this uh, idea of this four-year journey. There's nothing about it that has a wink and a nod. The humor comes from... The humor is, like, incidental to the style that it trades in. Like, the humor comes from the Robert Frost thing, which is just something completely stupid and just ridiculous. And Or the humor comes from the characters of Glottis being ridiculous. Uh, or the specific bits of each puzzle. The humor doesn't come from any of the tropes. The tropes are there for, to be themselves. And then when it gets to the ending and you realize, oh, it is just playing everything as earnestly and as straight as possible, the fact that it is built up across all all that time, the moment when he does start reaping uh, all those flowers is this incredible catharsis of everything that's been building up for the game so far. And it was super refreshing to see something commit to just being this fun genre thing without any winks and nods in uh what at the time was a big budget video game yes a big a big budget video game that did so poorly that people didn't want to make adventure games for years it's very it's very this was 98 right um believe so i should know it's this very, off the top of my head i'm pretty sure it is it's, yeah 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 it was it's right. Sad. It was right near the turn. The ca- also camera angles. The camera angles are the best. I love every shot in the game. The first time you see that big, like everybody talks about this one, but it's in Act Two when you first see the blimp. 
Mm-hmm. Like that one's that's freaking gorgeous. Yeah, I but I just mean like the way it frames a corridor, the way you walk down. I I think the the fact that we have lost in so many games the idea of pre-rendered pre-rendered backgrounds were the reason for this, but just the idea of fixed camera angles because people you don't want them because you uh, it's harder to control your character. But the sense of space and the tone that a uh, camera angle can portray and convey to the player is something that shouldn't be underestimated and it's really sad that it is also the fact that it's 4-3 as well works yes because it just looks like a 1940s movie it does it's colourful and everything but this is a guy who's watched so much noir in the time that he's making it is in the blood of the game I wonder sometimes if the move like I, I understand partially the move away from Pre, you know, pre-rendered backgrounds or everything too. But I think, I think one of the reasons why we definitely don't see them return as often now is because we've sort of equated camera control with like player freedom a little well, bit, right? It, it Where is, it's, it's like revo- we want we want to give them as much freedom to control and dictate as much of what they want to do over the space. That's like to be fair, it's, like this, it's ridiculous. This idea of those two things being equated is a byproduct of 3D platforming being hard. So yes. the reason that people really like camera controls is because we went through a whole generation where all of your Blastos and your Mario 64 derivatives had awful camera controls because they often like forced <laughs> you into weird situations where the camera didn't show you the thing you needed to jump at and it was terrible. Um, but for games that aren't that, like the problem is they people use that as a blanket for all 3D design when right. it, it was specifically about a certain thing. And one of the things that we were talking about, Yakuza, in the break, uh, one of the things that that game does in the first installment is it's all pre-rendered angles. Well, it's not pre-rendered backgrounds, but it's all fixed camera angles. And I do think that gives the city a better sense of place, as every shot and every street is framed in a certain way. And by f- being able to dictate the way, the lens through which you interact with the space, it, it, it just creates this greater familiarity with the specificity of the space rather than uh, being able to understand all of it and this omnipresence that comes with the camera you can completely control. And I think that's perfect for games that aren't about understanding the space intimately enough to move through it in very specific ways. If it's just, I have to walk through this corridor every five minutes I, and you want to frame that corridor correctly, like, at work. Like, the first Silent Hill game, there's that uh, alleyway early on where it does a top-down shot and it's one yeah. of the most atmospheric moments of that game and building up this sense of always being watched, of claustrophobia and without... like That first Silent Hill game conveys its tension almost entirely through camera angles for the first hour or so because not much is actually happening. I mean, that's... I mean, survival horror in general benefited benefited from those pre-rendered angles too because you can, yeah. you can mask where you're... Uh, where your encounters were and everything like that too. It was so weird. I played this side by side this uh because it came out around the same time. I was playing this side by side with the the remaster of Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play that soon. Yeah, yeah and it, and it's so interesting to see how both games will use the pre-rendered backgrounds and the fixed camera angles but for different effects. So in Grim Fandango, it's to situate yourself in inside of a space, right? It's to sort of Place yourself in a world and, um, tank controls in, in Grim Fandango are also meant to sort of make the world. I, th- I think, I think this might even be something that Tim has said. It creates this sense of the, 
world revolving around the player, right? Whereas, like, when I look at tank controls in Resident Evil, and, like, I'm not breaking anyone's minds by saying this, it's, like, the camera angles are meant there, there to, like, give you a sense of, like, not as much control over the space, and your lack of finer control is to make you feel uh, more vulnerable in the space. Whereas in Grim Fandango, the camera angles and the control scheme actually, I think, gives you a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I haven't played Resident Evil, even though uh, Matt has demanded I do. Oh, yeah. oh it's fun. Uh, it's I, totally fun. I that was it's one of the best GameCube games. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll play that one day. I've, only Resident Evil I've played is 4. That's a good one too, though. It's pretty good. Yeah. I had a good time. But his no. complaints about Resident Evil 4 is he played it and refused to use anything but a handgun for half of it. You'll do really well with Resident Evil original. Oh, will I though? Because that actually, I don't know. My safety my safety net, it's gone. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, Grim Fandango, I, I, it's just... I was so glad when they said that it was going to be remade, and then mm-hmm. I was amazed that it came out. Like, not not that the obviously it was a process they'd been working on for a long time, but they were like, "Hey, it's uh, we're remaking it. Hey, it's coming out like really soon." And I was like, "Oh, this is fucking perfect. It's so good." Um, but I, I also and it's and, I also specifically like the remake is such a light touch. Yes, uh, and I mean, and if you want to too, you can pretty much undo any of the any. Pretty much the only thing that you can't undo for, like, the retouch-ups is, like, you can't switch back to the original music. Mm-hmm. But then again, I don't know why you would want to, because the orchestration in this game is amazing. Like, it's so good. Uh, you can switch back to whatever, you know, f- screen format you want. You can switch back to the original graphics where you don't have any of that dynamic lighting or anything. But, like, let us keep the really good music. Uh It's... It, it it is nice to have those options that like they they sort of had that going into you know the special editions of Monkey Island mm-hmm. where you, where you could just switch back to the classic mode and you wouldn't have any of the voice acting or anything. Well, I I think the idea of remastering games is strange and undefined at the moment because particularly because games don't have uh, a respect for history in the way that I feel like they should, and this game. Un- this the remaster at least understands how to uh, bring back a thing, capture its essence, and change elements of it, and, like completely replace whole elements of it in a way that doesn't actually impact the experience or the intent or what the game is, and that's really rare. Because I'm trying to think, like, what what else? Is, what other games have been remastered? But like, there was the they they remade that first Halo game and. They redid every single graphic for no reason whatsoever, and it's just a completely different thing. And, um, but you compare that to the way they've brought back, I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking, but they brought back the Ratchet and Clank games, and those remasters are great. They're just I mean, very honest, just, very plain. They're things. just HD versions, though. I don't think, I think that's different than something like Grim Fandango. Grim Fandango is like getting a Blu-ray version of a movie you've only owned on VHS, to me. Okay, yeah, yeah. How often have they, have that, kind of thing happened in games like there's been the Resident Evil but that was Resident Evil's an was entirely the... different game as far as I'm concerned because that's the GameCube game yeah. it's just it yeah. is it's very different than like okay the PlayStation 1 or even like the director's cut from the Saturn or whatever yeah what's mm-hmm. the direct the, the director's cut you can I think you can actually get off yeah, of a... uh, the PSN mm-hmm. yeah it's w- which good. is okay 
Yeah. It's funny. I played first time I ever played Resident Evil was on the Saturn. So but just just to interject for like 2 seconds, I will say this um not even just on the subject of remastering, but uh games have a curation problem in general. So it's yeah. not it's not even just like obviously like maybe not obviously, but a game like Grim is going to get you know some attention paid to it, but like we lose so many other games. Um, like, I don't know any other, like, if I didn't have Scum VM, I don't know how, how I would play the original Sam and Max Hits the Road. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be no way for me to do it, because you, I, I'm pretty sure you can't get it on Steam. And so, other people's introduction to Sam and Max would only be, like, the Telltale games, which are fine. But, you know, and, and I'm still using higher, uh, a higher name sort of title, but it's like, in general, just like, games uh we are losing a lot of stuff very quickly yeah like the super early stuff like um no i'm guessing i mean super but pretty much anything of the 2d era is being maintained because emulators exist and people have done rom dumps of pretty much everything there's some things that have been lost but uh, people outside of the uh up and up sphere are doing their job thankfully that people in the legal space refuse to do about keeping games alive but as it's taking longer and longer to get games to a point where you can emulate them like about four years after a nintendo 64 had been released there was maybe not that soon but uh, project 64 existed yeah that or like moopin or something yeah but a ps2 emulator exists but it's not great and there's not gonna be an xbox emulator for another decade uh, and Dreamcast is still in- incredibly difficult to emulate. So, it like we've got to a point where the shady sphere of emulation or whatever can't actually do all that work on its own, and things are gonna, it's gonna st- in ten years. I don't even know what this will be like. So it's it's a shame. It makes me it makes me bummed out. Cause <laughs> it's, it seems like really easy to do something about in the moment, but. It just take, it just it just takes a lot of resources and a lot of a lot of people like mm-hmm. and maybe maybe I'm just being like really idealistic and simple about it but it's like it's just a lot of data you just got to find a way to have some place to store it and it's like on break or even before the podcast started we talked a little bit about academia right now academia doesn't I don't want to say it doesn't care because that's that's a not well, that's not true. But it's it's there, you... there's there's not as much curation with academia right now for numerous reasons. Well, that, yeah, that, I don't want to get into it too much because uh, we yeah, no, exactly. We we but both know was, what we're talking about on that. Yeah, front. there was that. Uh, if you just look it up to see what we're talking about, there was this, this series of tweets by Eight Bit Rebecca, uh, who is a game archivist and like is at the forefront of giving a shit about this. And the institutions that have the money and power to actually back this are yes. just washing their hands of it thoroughly for a variety of obvious reasons. Because no one cares or sees it as anything that's worthwhile. And part of that has been brought on by itself, because games culture is a festering pit of garbage. And it's it's just sad. It's sad and it's a shame. Yeah. And this sounds like the cynical way of looking at it, but I hope I hope that Grim Remaster did well enough to have not just double fine but other people more interested in this idea of sort of finding older games and like taking I mean, taking the dust off them because like 
if something is commercially viable, the industry will 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 grasp onto it. They'll always be interested in selling things back to you, but I'm I don't I I feel like what I, I guess it's the ESA. I don't know. There should be some kind of central video game organization that has some kind of standard that people can be held to and has. Like, I assume maybe this is being naive. I assume something like that exists in film, but I no, it, it doesn't. Of course not. No. Oh, it should exist in everything. But, um, Why does no? I mean, you need people who make games and have a lot of resources to like create foundations that do this work. Mm-hmm. Like your yes. Scorsese of the world are like archivists because they care about the medium. You need game makers yeah. who are willing to put their money and their energy into that, also. But. Like, we talk about Grimm as, like, we hope it's a success, but if you look at, like, the the re- reception of it, especially in, like, a more mainstream, critical way, like, I feel like it was really lukewarm. And so much of it is about this idea that, oh, we want these old games that remind us of our youth, but we aren't willing to deal with the fact that they're old games and those come with caveats when you engage with them. Yeah, it's it's that's, that's a tricky question um, to consider because, I mean, so much of anything that we consider... Um, you know, the, the nostalgia factor just cannot be denied and, and how to combat that and how to look at things I don't, later I don't on. Even, I don't even think the nostalgia factor is anywhere near as big of a problem as the, uh, mainstream games uh, idea of holding everything to some status quo idea of quality and, it, like, it, this is the view of games that has led to every single Ubisoft game that has been made in the last five years being identical. And all getting kind of good reviews. Like, that's a way wider problem than sometimes people hold games from their youth in higher esteem than they should. And that's what you see with the, these Grim Fandango reactions is that it's come back and it's this weird, difficult thing that you have to approach in this, um, open way and embrace a lot of its flaws to allow this deeper stuff to come to you. And few people are willing to do that. And that's fine, I guess, but it's definitely a shame in how games think about their history. And I don't think that's fine. Like, you just need to teach people that, like, mechanics and our understanding change. Like, even, I mean, we use film a lot here and it works, especially in the context of Grim Fandango, but if you watch, like, an old movie like Casablanca, you have to deal with a different type of dialogue that doesn't exist anymore. Or if you go even older, you have to deal with the idea of, like, film not breaking the proscenium and everything looking like a stage play because that's how they thought of film and that doesn't make these things bad it just means that you have to be educated on how you approach them yeah a, a, a broader history would would be nice it's like i don't know it, it would be like if i was holding some quick 15 second kuleshov thing to the same standards as i would like a De Palma film today or something. I don't know. Like it just like the comparison doesn't make sense. I think, I think like, sure, like film sensibilities or any other sensibilities have evolved, have evolved. And that sort of affects how we look at things, um, particularly in re- in retrospect, it, doubly so when we get to experience them for a second time. But, uh, I, I, I think there's, I mean, we, we, we don't remember things in their context as much. Which is, which is, which is hard, you know, I mean, some oh, people, some, pe- some people, yeah, and, and, and I mean, just some people just weren't around, but I mean, you know, this sounds like a silly one because people still think of this game fairly fondly, but like Mario 64, the first time I played Mario 64, it freaked me the fuck out. Like, 
I I didn't I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was happening um because I had never dealt with sort of moving on a like a z axis before, right? Mm-hmm. Um like the like and 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 so like the depth had existed as like an illusion type thing a little bit, right? And you had like mode 7 doing weird shit on the NES or whatever, but I remember playing the first time it was like you get to walk around this space and I did not understand like because of what I had been playing before like just the idea of depth itself was so strange so the fact that that game pulled off platforming as well as it did and even holds up now is absolutely astounding but um, but also like a game like Mario 64 like I remember seeking out a demo kiosk and you just load up in front of the castle like you do right yeah yeah and it just gives you this open space where there's no goals and just playing around in like this field with some trees and stuff feels like this incredible revolutionary thing that you have to like grapple with and then there's a whole game afterwards but like people think of like oh mario 64 is like those other 3d marios i really like galaxy it reminds me of 64 those games are designed in like totally antithetical ways like actually mario 64 is this weird playground expression of movement through space in a way that no other Mario has been. Maybe no 3D games really do anymore. Um, but nobody, like, remembers that part of it. They remember that you grabbed 120 stars and you met Yoshi and you fought Bowser. No, you just have to look at all the Mario 64 clones at the time. You go look at Jack and Daxter, you go look at Banjo-Kazooie, they're collection fests. Mm-hmm. They're these ideas that take these tangible elements of Mario 64, but forget that moment when you first played it and had no idea what was going on and the way it communicates its ideas to you. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know either. I mean, I think the the actual thing is like, if the institutions aren't going to work on like games advocacy of like historical games, then it, it falls on people who are like enthusiasts for it. Like the fact that because of this podcast, me and Jackson finally sat down and played Doom and Planescape and Grim Fandango for the very first time. Oh my gosh. You guys hadn't played. Oh my God. I want to talk about all those things, but we can talk, we can about, talk them about them after the podcast. Later. We'll be happy. Yeah. It's like, you play, you, it's like you play Planescape. Planescape's so fucking good. And we, oh my God, we were Planescape's both terrified so to play it because we thought of it in this context <laughs> of these super hardcore, like Baldur's Gate style RPGs that everyone said no, were no, inaccessible. No. You, you, and, you and, only, you only need to fight people three times in that game. I know. It's but crazy. We didn't know that. Oh, plus, plus I thought it was like 80 hours long and it's not. And I, then I just hexed in my save and gave myself the best acts of all time anyway. And it was so <laughs> fun because I'm just talking to do, ah, oh, I think my favorite moment from video games last year was when I, uh, was the DNR stone from that game. It's still super oh, impactful. Yeah, sure. Holy shit. Either that or, fi- or, uh, or, uh, learning your own name. Yeah. Which is a really other good moment. All but right. now we're talking about another different game entirely. Uh, I, I feel like we, that means... Grim, Van, yeah. Grim Fandango is really good, people. Yep. You should play it. So time to <laughs> wrap it up. So yes, play Grim Fandango. <laughs> um, pl- play, some, play some old games. Like anything that you're like even vaguely interested in. Like learn about the context of it maybe a little bit and then play it. It's not that hard. Yeah, go go way back. Go play like Adventure. They just did, they did a postmortem on adventure at GDC. Like everybody should play adventure. It's so fucking like just play old stuff and then uh, play old stuff and then support the f- new stuff that's on the fringe. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like play old stuff and then like also go to like itch.io and then just find a game that looks interesting and play it. And then if you like it a lot, send the creator a couple dollars and that will, and that will foster not only, um, a better, experience uh for you with games but it will also encourage like 
other people to keep on making games that are based off old things and all this other cool stuff. It's a big, it's a big giving cycle. The more you give, the more, the more that we give and the more that we engage, the more that we are going to get back. If you were one of the people who was like, oh, the order's too short, then look either behind or to the side and you'll never have to go down that road again. Yes. Alright, so for segment four, normally we take questions, but apparently we only have one question. Jackson, do you want to posit the question? No, because it's not on my screen. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) So our friend Dylan, do you know his full name? Dylan Schneider? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was right. This was Ah. um, ages ago. I can't find it on my Twitter at all. Asked, I, I just, I'm just gonna go ahead and think what I remembered as, what is the greatest video game fish? No, it was, what is the best fish in vidgams? Oh, right. Whatever. Okay. Uh, the windfish from, uh, Link's Awakening? This is still not the right answer. Uh, is the answer Philfish? No. No, <laughs> not, not on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, that's funny for reasons you don't even know. I'm just, I'm just naming fishes. The actual um, only answer that I'll accept as the best fish in video games is Magikarp. Fish from Animal Crossing. It's Magikarp. Magikarp. Oh, Magikarp. Yes, the little fish I, that uh, could. Maybe. Come on. Okay, I was, I was gonna obvious. say windfish and go on this big whole spiel about dreams turning into reality or whatever, but you, you have your fucking Magikarp, man. <laughs> I mean, the oh, windfish is cool, but look, Magikarp as like a cultural impact is way bigger than the windfish. What the fuck kind of cultural impact is Magikarp? You are hanging out on the wrong part of the internet, Jackson. Oh, uh, you're right. <laughs> you need to go on is, Tumblr is he, more. Is he on the level of that other that Mudkip person? I mean, Magikarp's been around Mudkip longer Pokemon. and is more important than the. Do you like Mudkips? Yes. Okay, because that's the one I know. And I also, I know you, but I know Wobbuffet is a popular one everywhere. Yeah, but I, me yep. in particular, I'm Mr. <laughs> Wobbuffet, but. <laughs> no, I mean, so he went on this big long spiel the other day about how he thinks water levels are the best part of games because he's wrong about things. But I like, <laughs> I, playing Monster Hunter, I'm reminded that I enjoy that when games just have random fishing mini games tacked into them, uh, because I enjoy the way that it lets you stop in an environment and, in, like, commune with nature in, like, this very sure. formal way. Like, you think of Zelda and you go, like, in Ocarina of Time, you just go to the fishing spot and you're just standing in this nice mossy pond for, like, hours on end just enjoying this small space that they've crafted to be really peaceful and quiet. And I love that fishing allows you to put that in a game that is about running through dungeons and swinging swords and stuff. Mm-hmm the best fishing games <laughs> i mean legend of the river king yeah, for game of color that's your answer <laughs> it's, it's like just it. a fishing rpg it's the camera angle when kiryu catches the fish in yakuza 3 that's the best thing about fishing yak in uh, video oh games. yeah i almost I, I i almost said that i almost said the trout pool from uh from shovel knight that's pretty good that's not a which bad is pretty pull. which is a pretty good pretty good choice as well yep which uh, the whole tribal dance is just a riff on Link's Awakening. So there you go. Yeah. Bringing it back around. There we go. 
All full circle. All right. Um, next month, Jackson, what are we doing for our Game Club game? Oh, I remember. We're doing LG for a Dead World. Which... Oh, my gosh. I love those guys. Uh, Zyba's really cool, and uh, Dejabon's an amazing studio. Yeah, I, I'm I, a fan yeah. of their games, but had not played this one, so we're going to go through it and share our creations from it on the podcast. It's it's so different than like being like, oh, I guess I'll play drunken robot pornography for a little bit. And then you're like, oh, what's this? LG for a dead world? It's like, oh, LG is really good. Yeah, we're, we're excited. Um, we're pretty excited. Yeah. And yeah, you so guys should have fun with that. That'll be a lot of us reading our writing. And I don't know how that's going to go, but it'll be an interesting deviation. Um, also, probably expect Final Fantasy somewhere at the end of next month, I hope. Cross your fingers. <laughs> I think Final Fantasy will be the week before LG for a Dead Bird. That's the most optimistic assumption I've ever made, but I think we can do it. I'm pretty... I'm getting there. I'm working on that game. Next week is all Final Fantasy for me. You got it. You can do it. All right. I just have to play the card game, though. You don't have to. No, you don't. But I think the card game's cool. (laughs) I'm sure I'll want to get you... Anyway. uh... Heather, tell us where people can find you. Plug your stuff. Oh, Lorsh. I don't... No. I don't know. Um, so, uh, I am at transgamerthink on, uh, Twitter. I am transgamerthoughts.tumblr.com because I couldn't think of a better site to put a blog on than Tumblr. <laughs> and then, um, I am on, uh, the YouTubes as well. If you just look up, uh, Heather Alexandra or like, let's remember Skies of Arcadia or something, you'll find me. I'm all over, the, I'm all over the place. I don't know. That, that caught me off guard. <laughs> uh, Jack- I, I hope that worked. No, that, that should was be fine. enough. That was where people can find you. Jackson, plug your shit. Uh, I'm at Headfuls Off on Twitter now. Oh, God. Sorry, this like, is the- you said that and my brain broke. I forgot. You changed <laughs> your name and I'm still not used to it. It'll, it'll settle soon. Uh, uh, I'm also, I mean, I'm normalmapping.com. That's where I write. Also, have a podcast called Trashback Ratio at trashbackratio.com, and you can find me at patreon.com slash headfallsoff. I think slash Jackson Tyler still works, though, if you want to go that way. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I'm on Abnormal Mapping. Check out the YouTube channel. Uh, Jackson's doing Morning Mario, and I'm about to start Final Fantasy XIII, too. Oh, Morning Mario. Oh, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) Um, I have a book club podcast uh, called Books for Crooks. You can find it at booksforcrooks.tumblr.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at LitRock, L-I-T-R-O-C-K. That's it. Have a good month. We will see you in April. Bye.